Hello Freedom Pact. Today on the show, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Will Bolshewitz. At the Gut Health MD on Instagram, Will is a practicing gastroenterologist and a leading expert into gut health. Will's work has been published in major features such as Men's Health, The Huffington Post, and Reader's Digest. I can honestly say to you that this is one of the most mind-blowing conversations we've had on the show, and I've had personally in my entire life. You're going to learn all about the hottest topic in medicine, the microbiome. You're going to learn the latest studies, how important gut health is, how it affects you, and what you can do to slave off disease. This episode could literally save your life. I can't underestimate the importance of this episode, and we praise Will so much for bringing light to a subject that has been in darkness for so long. Dr. Will Bolshewitz, welcome to the Freedom Pact. So, Will, I suppose the most important question that you could possibly answer today is, when you were dating your wife, did you tell her that you were a gastroenterologist, or did you tell her that you were a doctor? <laughs> That's a very fair question, to be honest with you. Um when I was single and I would tell people that that's what I do for a living, uh, you know, there were a fair number that were kind of like, gosh, what's the deal with this guy, <laughs> you know? And so with my wife, I had to give it at least a couple dates because I, I, I had a big crush on her. And so I didn't want her to kind of bail on me too early in the game. <laughs> um, so I had, to, I had to wait till like, I think we waited, you know, I mean, I met her mom before I told her that I was a gastroenterologist. We'll put it that way. So. <laughs> I think just doctor is a pretty safe bet. <laughs> yeah. You know, every, anytime you get a question, like, you know, she's like, so tell me more about what you do. You're, you, you know, you figure out some sort of crafty way to change the conversation into something else. So until eventually it's like, yeah, I'm the guy that does colonoscopies for a living. So, <laughs> so, so should we start by, can we just get some, say, some background into your field? I mean, how did the journey to your current position, you know, where does the passion come from? Uh, the, so it's, it's a long story, but we can, let's chop it down real quick. And, um, you know, truly for me, the passion starts, I think it's just innate. It's a part of, you know, your individual human spirit. Um, I, in high school, knew that I wanted to do something to try to help people. And so I went through a, a process, you know, really motivated starting in high school where I was just very, very focused on, okay, I, I've decided I want to do this. I want to be a medical doctor. And originally thought that I was going to be a pediatrician because I, I, I love kids and, and, you know, felt like I could make a difference trying to help kids. But, um, anyway, I, I, I did four years of college, um, and then four years of medical school. And upon completing medical school, I knew at that point that this is what I wanted to do, that I wanted to be a gastroenterologist. I kind of switched. I wasn't, uh, it, it became clear to me that the right fit for me was something like this, where I had a combination of taking care of adults 
um, having the opportunity to talk to them about nutrition and things like that, but also using my hands to try to fix problems. Um, that's part of what I love about my job is that I spend about half my time doing procedures and actually helping people that way. And so that, so I, at that point in my life, I was 26. I was a, I was a medical doctor. I finished medical school. Um, but I was just kind of getting started in terms of my training and I did four years of training in internal medicine, uh, was the chief medical resident at Northwestern in Chicago. And then I did four years of training in GI, my specialty, um, at the university of North Carolina. And I'll tell you that it sounds, this sounds weird to say that I did four years of training and normally people do three because it makes it sound like I was remediated for a year. Um, but actually what happened for me is that I, I actually was on a track to be a, a cancer epidemiologist. I, I was very, very interested in clinical research. And so I was on a grant from the U.S. National Institute of Health. They were actually paying for me to do some additional education at the School of Public Health at the University of North Carolina. And, um, and my, my career path changed along the way, but I still share this scientific curiosity. That's just who I am. And so, so 16 years of training total when you start from college to the end. Um, I started off with this dream when I was 16 years old, and I started college when I was 18, and I didn't really complete all that work until I was 34 years old. And that's when I finally went into practice, which was five years ago. Uh, some great background and and before we actually dive into the the information and, and the details on gut health i wanted to ask this question because in all respect to our audience of course there's going to be a lot of people who know absolutely nothing about the subject and not only that they won't know why they should why they should be concerned or care about it so i just wanted to ask you before we dive in why should people care about gut health to begin with I honestly believe that everyone, uh, whether you are dealing with illness or you are completely healthy, I honestly believe that everyone should be thinking about gut health and how can we do things to optimize it. And the reason why is because gut health is connected to health throughout the entire body. And we can, you know, we can dive into the details of what I'm about to say. But the broad overview of why gut health is relevant is that this is so much more than just the way that your belly feels. This is so much more than digestion. Um, this has huge implications for your metabolism, huge implications for your immune system, your ability to protect yourself from infections, from cancer, um, having an immune system that functions properly and is not overreactive to the point of developing an allergy or an autoimmune illness. Um, that is connected to your mood, the way that you feel, your energy levels, whether or not you have fatigue, um, your focus, uh, depression, anxiety, neurologic illness, um, Alzheimer's disease, loss of memory. So what we have discovered in the last few years is that um, this humble organ that frankly was not really uh, a point of emphasis just you know, 10, 15 years ago has turned into the most important thing from a health perspective. And, you know, I, I honestly believe all health, all health and disease starts in the gut. And so if you want health, then you should start that process of, 
of trying to pursue better health with your gut health. That's to me what it's about. You can try to fix your heart, you can try to fix your brain or whatever organ you're focused on, but if you don't take care of your gut, then you're running against the wind. Wow. And um, we're definitely going to cover this in detail in this episode. Uh, just just to bring it back to say more of a contextual part, um, something which we've experienced, say, from personal experience and doing some sort of qualitative research, is we found that people have come back typically with, say, two real reasons that are, say, uh, that are stopping them from taking action in their lives to become healthier, as you say. And we found that it was either a lack of knowledge or conflicting information when it comes to food. Do you think that this is a problem in terms of the the conflict? Because that's just something I've experienced personally too. I think it's a huge problem. Um, both of these things, frankly. The lack of knowledge is not just an issue with individuals. This is a, a problem with providers too, um, which is frustrating because there's nothing worse than, to me, than seeing a medical doctor who is as well-trained as me, you know, spends years of their life devoted to trying to help people and yet lacks the knowledge base necessary to be able to provide real high-quality counseling when it comes to nutrition. Um, just because someone is a medical doctor does not mean that they really have a full, complete understanding of what this is all about. And that's one of the things that makes it very challenging is that the to the layperson, you know, people who are listening to this, your listeners, they just, they just want to be better. They just want good advice. Um, and who do you turn to 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 get that information. And I completely understand what you mean when you say conflicting information, because there's, I could, you know, rattle off the books that are out there that one says this and the other says that. And, and it's, it's incredibly frustrating um, because part of the issue, I, I have to tell you, and this is, this is the way that I see it. Part of the problem is that there is no requirement for scientific rigor to publish a book. Um, and I don't mean to be trashing the publishers because I'm publishing a book right now. Like I'm, I actually am submitting my book to my publisher in less than a week, but there's no scientific requirement. Um, you could literally say whatever you want, whether it's grounded in fact, whether the science is strong or the science is weak, you can say whatever you want. And if you say something that is going to get people really excited because you're telling them that their bad habit that they love is good for them, um, you're going to sell a lot of books. I mean, I hate to say it, but that's the truth. If you tell people what they want to hear, which is that their bad habit is actually good for them, you're going to sell a lot of books, but you're going to create confusion in the process because people don't realize that the science that you're putting out there is weak. It's weak. It's not strong science. So it's it's a this is uh, 2019, you know, and this is the world that we live in. There is more access to information. There are more people who have an opinion, um, and 
as a result, there's more confusion that's being created uh, for the individual person who's well-intentioned and just wants to be better. Mm, for sure. And and we definitely uh, uh, are excited about that book release and we will be keeping a close eye on that. I, I listened to a podcast you did before and you talked about this one particular study which caught my eye in which I think it was like a breakdown of carbohydrates and they and, and you made the point that it's an unfair study because the people in the Western world are more likely to eat, say, a, a better standard of food, if you will, than, say, someone out in, in like, Nepal. And, and, I, and I remember that study. What, what would your advice be to, say, someone that is looking for studies say what would your tips be for 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 finding that good information well um it's not so you know this stuff is not easy for the individual person to go you can get access to these studies don't get me wrong you can find these studies you can read the summary which is the abstract but you have to understand that the devil is in the details. There's always more to the story than what you just read in the abstract. What they claim in the abstract as the result, many scientists may challenge that. And so it's a little bit hard to answer this question because what I would tell you is that, you know, I, I spent years, I spent hundreds of hours of my life um, studying research methodology, which I have to tell you is not a fun thing to study. Um, but I did it in the interest of preparing myself to have the skill set to do this kind of stuff in order to, in order to be able to publish these papers, which is what I was doing. And so, you know, that's, it's not something that you can read a single article on, you know, how to interpret a study and then be able to go and do it yourself. It's very hard. These are complicated things. Um, so at the end of the day, you have to find a person that you trust. And what you want is someone who is giving you an honest, unbiased opinion. If they have an agenda, that's a problem. If they have an agenda, that's a conflict of interest. And it, it, that agenda could be anything on a spectrum. But if they have a specific thing that they're trying to get across to you, that's a problem. Because if you go into the research and you have an agenda and you are biased, you are biased in your selection of what studies you choose to share people, you are biased in the way that you interpret those studies, well, then it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're, gonna, you're going to find what you want to find. And that's part of the reason why there's such confusion out there is that people there are people out there very public figures with massive followings who have an agenda and they go into the research and they dig in to find exactly what they want to find and then if a study comes out that challenges their agenda they're going to figure out it's like okay well let me try to figure out how i can dismantle this study because I, that doesn't jive with what i'm trying to teach people well hold on that's biased you need to take a step back and you need to look at this study with honesty. And if you don't look at the study with honesty, then you're not giving people an honest opinion on the research. And so that's where I really feel it's important for there to be trustworthy sources out there. That's frankly part of the reason why I've kind of gotten into this thing of sharing, you know, sharing my perspective is that I think people deserve to hear the truth. They deserve to have trustworthy sources. When you look at these studies, um, you know, it, this is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, I even feel a little bit squeamish even saying this. There are a 
couple there there are journals that are very 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 difficult to get into i can tell you firsthand having worked in this world and submitted papers high quality papers um to journals and it is really hard to get into the top top journals and so it's i would not go so far as to say that all of the papers published in the top top journals are good papers that's that's way too much of a generalization that's why i'm a little squeamish in saying this but I will tell you that there is a process of um, peer review that people go through in order to publish a paper. And if it's getting published in Nature, Science, the New England Journal of Medicine, the British Medical Journal, gut, um, you know, in my field, gastroenterology, if it's being published in one of these top, top journals, I, I can just tell you I know how hard those scientists have worked to get through that process to get their paper published that is not easy to get your paper published in those places so and there's something to be said for the merit of that accomplishment um so that's that's what i would say about that question Mm. yeah there's there's so much to to consider there and and you know and and something which you've you've already said which which really hits me is is you know about that type of that confirmation bias and then going back to uh you know an earlier point which you made you know i really think that you know people will become say more different or or say go against the reasoning to sell you know because that creates attention the attention economy is higher something i also found really interesting was and this could be a you know a major reason for 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 these things where where the sort of breakdown is is that and I, I was amazed by this was that I, I I heard you say before that uh during your medical school you only received about two weeks of of you know nutritional training and I think it was during your second year of studies type of thing so so from like a doctoral point of view do you feel as if the problem is more of a of a systemic issue there's a huge systemic issue that's a great question um there is no question that there is a systemic issue and you know let me break this down a little bit for the readers i'm sorry for the listeners at home um so that you understand and again this is you know i'm speaking specifically to the united states but i'm pretty sure that there's similar issues in other countries doctors are well-intentioned people um there is no maliciousness uh, among the medical community we don't want people to be sick we desperately want people to be well we desperately want people to be well we've dedicated our life to healing people if we wanted to make money if i wanted to make money I, i can tell you right now this is not what i would be doing i'd be a banker um i would be making so much more money as doing doing that thing but the, uh, the problem is that the system has created uh, challenges for doctors to have these conversations about nutrition. And it starts with, as you said, you, you hit the nail on the head. There's no training in medical school for nutrition. Um, my second year of medical school was in 2003. And in that year, I had two weeks of nutrition training. And honestly, I don't think I even showed up to the class. Um, I studied, you know, I studied the cliff notes and did enough so that I could pass the exam because that's what I cared about, pass the exam. 
Um, so the, the amount of training is not there and it was not a part of my routine training. And I trained at elite institutions in the United States, like for the Americans who are listening, you know, these name brands, you know, Georgetown, Northwestern, the university of North Carolina in my field, specifically in gastroenterology, many gastroenterologists would agree with me that UNC could easily be the number one division for GI, the number one GI program in the country. And yet this wasn't a routine part of what we were taught. And, you know, part of the problem is that you don't educate the doctors. Part of the problem is that the doctor is, you know, they finish their training, they come out, they enter into practice, and there's no one who comes to the office to talk to them about nutrition. Well, what we have instead is we have people that come to the office to try to convince us to prescribe more medications. And, um, and then what you have is a situation where to have a good nutritional conversation takes about 15 minutes at least to have a real nutrition conversation. And the problem is that you have that nutrition conversation for 15 minutes and you were not paid for that. In the United States, you are not paid for that. I am not paid for that and neither are my colleagues. And so from the perspective of running a business, and I'm not saying running a business because you are greedy and you're trying to make as much money as possible. Um, people would be shocked if they knew what it costs a doctor's office to keep the lights on and keep working. It's very expensive and there's huge financial pressure to deliver um, efficiently. Uh, there's no taking our time. I wish I wish I could have a relaxed environment where I could talk to my patients for you know 90 minutes each. It's not the case. I can't do that. If I did that, we'd go out of business. So there's this pressure on doctors to move, 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 go faster, faster, faster. That's what the system has done to us. And so to take 15 minutes to have a nutrition conversation with a patient when you are not going to be paid for that, it's you're hurting yourself. Um, I hate to say it, but you are. So I do it because I believe in it so wholeheartedly. And I just accept, I accept that, you know, it is what it is. It's going to affect my paycheck and I move on. Um, but I, I don't know that it's fair to judge other doctors when the system is forcing you into that position. And the, you know, the other two things I would say real quick, uh, about this number one, if you're a doctor and you love, you know, certain foods that are unhealthy foods, are you really going to sit there and look your patient in the eye and tell them that they're they, they need to change their diet. The number one cause of death for cardiologists, heart doctors in the United States, the number one cause of death for a cardiologist is heart disease. And that's a diet motivated thing. So doctors are not taking their own medicine. Um, even if you know what you're supposed to tell your patient, the doctors aren't necessarily doing it. So should you be telling your patient to do it, but you're not doing it yourself? That's a tough thing. And the last thing I'd say is, it, I think that doctors get um, cynical and they make these recommendations to people and people don't do them. And so after a while, you're like, gosh, I spent 15 minutes, you know, investing my effort into trying to help this person and making, a, having a conversation about nutrition and they didn't do it. So why did I do that conversation? And you, you come to a point where you're like, look, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna write prescriptions for pills because that takes me two seconds. So it's sad, but that's that's the state of affairs. I think the the fact that, as you mentioned, 
the institutions you were in and, and the limited uh, amount of conversations and training you were having there is quite reflective of society's approach in general in terms of these issues. Do you think that there should be or there is more of a responsibility to be instilling this type of information in the everyday people, not just the people who are interested, not just the physicians, but just in society so, and instilling this in the younger generation because I don't think there is enough information on especially nutrition at all. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think that I think that this this is this is life giving information. When you share this information, um, let me put it to you this way. The average person eats uh, in the United States. We use pounds, but I'll just use kilograms to make it simple. So, uh, so that everyone listening, I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it simple. The average person in the United States eats about three pounds of food per day. So that is a little more than a kilogram of food on a daily basis, every day. All right, go over the course of a year, and that in the United States is a thousand pounds of food, or if you were to say be uh, uh, about 400 kilograms um, total over the course of a year, about 400 kilograms. And so think about that in a year, a thousand pounds of food, 400 kilograms, and the average person lives to be about 80 years old right now. So 80,000 pounds or 32,000 kilograms of food during your lifetime. And we're going to pretend that a couple milligrams of medicine are going to fix the problems that we have. They're not. This is the number one determinant of health and disease during your lifetime is the food that you choose to eat. And the problem that we run into is that people are not given the appropriate education in order to know, you know, how to eat, what is good, what is bad. Um, you have a free market where businesses are not under any obligation to do what is good for society. You know, they can sell you their food, even if it causes disease, rampant disease in society, they can still, they have the right to sell you their food, to market it, and to try to convince you to come over and buy their food with these powerful marketing techniques. So you have all these pressures and powers that are convincing you, hey, I need to eat this way, I need to eat this, I need to eat that. And you have no one on the other side who's sitting there and telling you, whoa, 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 that food's not good for you. Um, you, you really shouldn't be doing that because over the course of time, yeah, one meal, no problem. One meal is not going to do anything, but you do that consistently. You make a habit of eating that particular way. It's going to come back and it's going to get you. And it's not a question of whether or not it's going to get you. It is going to get you. It's just a question of when it happens. Are you going to be young? Are you going to get and have to struggle with that for the rest of your life? Or are you going to be later in life, you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, and you're suffering with disease, chronic debilitating disease, and you're going to live to be 80 or 85 years old, but now you have to suffer for the last 20 or 30 years of your life because of the disease that you developed as a result of the way that you ate your entire lifetime. And yes, the healthcare system shows up to fix the problems when the, when the problems arise, but the healthcare system is not interested in having a conversation with you to prevent the disease in the first place. And that, to me, is the failure of the system. It's a breakdown. Yeah, something I think that really benefits you in these instances is, is you know, because obviously, I mean, running a business is, is you know, it's not, it's not, it's not easy. You know, from what you've said, it does sound like 
you know that that you really have a choice between you know keeping the bills on and you know doing doing the right thing you know it sounds it sounds like a really you know difficult choice to make so this is why i think you know you come in taking the time out of your day to come and do these podcasts you know you can say to your patients like look like i don't i don't have the 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 time to tell you what you need to but you know but here's a you know but this is like a 90 minute conversation i did you know like like i can give you more value by sending you this link you know than 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 i can in 10 minutes i totally agree no that's that's 100 percent true and actually i've done that actually i've done that i've told people hey go check out this podcast that i did here um because it's a 90 minute conversation on what i wish that i could tell you and that's and that's frankly the genesis of where the book comes from which is that you know this book is me investing literally five months of my life digging deep to find the best information to share with people written in great detail more more frankly than we could ever do in a podcast we could do a marathon podcast for 12 hours there's still going to be content that we couldn't cover that's in the book so and that's that's the point i think from my perspective is that we need to look like you're saying we need to look for other outlets to share this information where people can get high quality information and understand better what the deal is Mm. just as a as a sort of um as a quick pre- uh, preface before we delve into to you know the microbiome and whatnot can you just give our our audience any sort of insight into the book any any names where they could maybe pre-order or anything like that uh, i wish i <laughs> wish i could so so the the scoop is this i i this this whole thing happens so fast um i decided in august of last year that I wanted to try to write a book and by mid-September I had a literary agent and by October I had submitted a book proposal to the major publishers here in the United States and by mid-November I had a book deal Um, and so my book deal is with Penguin Random House which most of y'all will know Penguin Random House specifically the imprint is Avery and so they booked like Avery uh, published the Dalai Lama's book, and like if you know Giselle Giselle Bunchen, the model, she her book is published with my with my publisher. Um, and so that happened in November, and ever since then I've just been working on writing, and it's all come to fruition. Where now I'm going to be handing over this manuscript, um, handing over this manuscript to my publisher on Wednesday of this coming week, and. Then we're going to go through a review process, and I think the book is probably going to come out in early 2020 sometime. Like I could see it being like February or March of 2020, but I can't say that with certainty. And so the bottom line, what I would say is come and hang with me on Instagram or Facebook at The Gut Health MD. Um, You can come to my website, theguthealthmd.com, and sign up for my list. And that way, when it comes time to pre-order the book, you will know and you can get your pre-order in so that you can get the book as soon as it comes out. So it's so I, I wish I had more details than that. That's where we're at. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll definitely be keeping a close eye on it. So I think now's definitely a good time to, to, to let you do what you do best. And so could you please explain what the microbiome is and why it's important you know it's it's interesting um 
learning about the microbiome has changed the way that I feel about my place on this planet. Um, you know, we think of ourselves as these big, strong, powerful humans, and I've learned to accept that actually it's more about the way that we balance within the world around us. Um, so there's this community of microorganisms that is a part of who you are uh, as a human being, and these microorganisms uh, include many different types. So five, five core types, which are bacteria. All right, so we all know bacteria. Like we've all heard of E. coli, and you know you think of it as being uh, bad, but the truth is actually they're really good. Um, they're there to help you for the most part. Yes, there's some bad guys. There's some bad guys in our society too, like in the city that I live in. But most people are really good, and so are the bacteria. Most of them are really good. Bacteria, yeast or fungi is the second group. Um, the third group are parasites. There's not as much of that in the Western world where we live because of the way that we sterilize things, but they do exist. Um, and then my personal favorite, the fourth group, is they're called archaea. And so archaea are these single cellular organisms that I find to be fascinating because they are the they are literally the first life on this planet. Um, they actually were discovered at a site, an uh, archaeologic site in Greenland, four billion years old, four billion years old. And so what's interesting is that four billion years ago, um, Earth was very different. There was no oxygen. There was no oxygen for another 1.5 billion years. So they lived in this planet. And so these are hardy organisms that uh, will survive no matter what. And you will find them in the bottom of the ocean in a rift vent, uh, or you'll find them inside of a volcano, or you'll find them in your colon, <laughs> the human colon. And um, and then the fifth thing are viruses, which are not really uh, microorganisms. It's hard to describe them because they're not really living, but they do have an impact on this community, including on the bacteria and whatnot. But the main driver here is the bacteria. Those They're, they're the most dominant. They are the highest number by far. And the current estimates are that we have about 39 trillion uh, microbes living within our colon. 39 trillion, which is a hard number to fathom. But to put it into perspective, if you were to see all the stars in the Milky Way, every single star, you would have to take all those stars and multiply that number by 100. And that's how many bacteria you have inside of you right now listening to this podcast. Um, it is the densest concentration of bacteria on the planet, more than you will find in the most disgusting uh, porta potty after like three days of a rock concert festival, more than you'll find in the subway system in New York City, more than you'll find on a rotten corpse, and not to be too graphic, but it is the highest concentration of bacteria on the entire planet, and they they play a critical role in our health so um they help us to process and digest our food uh that's almost a given being that they live within our intestines but then there's so many other things too they have a huge effect on our metabolism the way that we process our food which is something i think we'll talk about a little more in a moment they affect our immune system our immune system is right there Right there, like literally there's this single small layer of cells that is a fraction of the size of your hair follicle. And um, 
they, that's the only thing that separates your gut bacteria from the immune system. 70% of your immune system lives in your gut. They have the ability to send signals throughout the entire body that can influence so many different things. For example, um, serotonin, which is the happy hormone, which regulates your mood, how you feel, um, you know, whether or not you have depression or anxiety, 90% of serotonin is produced in your gut, 90%. And they have found this direct link back to these microbes um, that exists. There's over 30 neurotransmitters that are produced in the gut linked back to these microbes, your microbiome. Um, and they control genetic expression. So, you know, uh, I'll give you an example, celiac disease. Celiac disease has exploded, exploded in the last 50 years. And for the listeners at home, celiac disease is uh, essentially a, a autoimmune reaction that your system has to the consumption of gluten. Gluten is a protein that you will find in wheat, barley, and rye. It's in a lot of processed foods, a lot of processed grains that contain wheat. And so if you have celiac disease and you consume gluten, then your immune system attacks your intestine and tears it up. And it's dangerous because this could lead to cancer of the small intestine, which is almost universally fatal. So here's what's interesting. We know that among Europeans, one out of three people have the gene for celiac disease. This is not a rare gene. One out of three people. But it's about one in a hundred that actually develop the disease, and yet that number is rapidly rising. When you see a disease that's genetically motivated, but it's rapidly rising, you know there's something else going on. It's not that our genetics are changing. Our genetics don't change among humans in 40 years, 50 years. What changes is something else, and in this case, it's the microbiome. Um, they've discovered that in order to develop celiac disease, you basically need to meet three criteria. This is what they found. Number one, you need to have the gene. If you don't have the gene, you can't have the disease. Number two, you need to consume gluten at some point. That's, a, that's all of us. I'm, I'd be shocked if there was a single person listening to this right now who has not consumed gluten during their lifetime. And number three, damage to the gut microbiome which we call dysbiosis. Damage to the gut microbiome essentially triggers the disease. Think of the gene for celiac disease as being a light switch. It's in the off position, but if you damage the gut microbiome, it can flip that light switch into the on position, and unfortunately, once it's flipped on, it's on. There's no going back. And so we've discovered that our microbiome has this profound impact on even the way that we express our own genetics. So it's just kind of crazy to step back and think of the expansive nature of this community of microorganisms that controls the way we digest and process our food, our metabolism, our immune system, our mood, our genetic expression. And to think that for every single nucleated human cell that you have in your body, there are 10 bacteria hanging out, 10 bacteria outnumbering your human cells. And so you are 10% human. But th that's not even where it ends because from a genetic perspective, 
you are way less than that. You are less than 1% human from a genetic perspective. The vast majority of your genetic code is carried by these microorganisms. So all this stuff is a little bit overwhelming, um, but it's an exciting time in science. I mean, if if our audience wasn't uh, gripped to the rest of this podcast before that answer, they certainly are now. I mean, I, I mean, I, I had to pick my jaw up off the floor a few times during. I mean, I I couldn't believe some of the things uh, you mentioned there. I mean, I was shocked by this the serotonin, the disease. I mean, I I guess everyone listening right now is is gripped and just wants to know how they can even keep their microbiome healthy i mean i mean i'll tell you i am a scientist and this to me it it blows my mind too it's it's crazy what what is going on with our body and you you know it really challenges i think a lot of the um preconceived notions that we had about you know what it means to be human and um, what human health is about. You know, I, I'll give you an example before we jump into how you actually create a healthy gut. In 2000, the president of the United States, Bill Clinton at that time, called a press conference related to a major scientific discovery. Now, I will tell you, I, I can't think of many times that a president of the United States has called a press conference because of scientific discovery. Um, if they discover the cure for cancer, they're going to call a press conference. But beyond that, I can't think of many other times that they've done this. And the reason why is, so Tony Blair was a part of this press conference, by the way. And uh, the reason why they did this is because for the first time they had cracked the human genetic code. And they really legitimately, I mean, these brilliant scientists legitimately thought that by cracking the human genetic code, that we would basically have a roadmap to human health and that we would have it all figured out. And there's a guy who I believe is a British professor who wrote a letter to um, one of the major scientific publications and he challenged this notion right from the get-go. And he, um, he basically said, you guys are jumping the gun this is not going to turn out the way you think it's going to. And he wrote, he gave a quote that I, that I love and I think it's so appropriate, which is that he said, in the map for human health, count the microbes too. And so in other words, if you're going to talk about human health, you can't talk about human health without including this microbial community that matters to the expression of human health. And so he turned out to be 100%, 100% right in what he said because, um, as you are well aware, we have not cured all the diseases as a result of cracking the human genetic code. And that's because the human genetic code is less than 1% of the gene pool that you carry in your body and also because these gut microbes have the ability to flip the switch on your genetics like we were just talking about with celiac disease. So it's a fascinating thing. Yeah. Um, to answer your question, uh, there are so many factors that contribute to the health of the gut microbiome, and we could go through this, you know, sort of a list of things in more detail if you want to, but let me start and say, let me just start 
with a broad overview and then come back to the number one thing. For sure, for sure. There are, yeah. there are things that you have no control over. Uh, it is what it is. You, you can't control who your family is and the microbes that you inherit from your parents. You inherit you know, a microbial pool from your mom who inherited a microbial pool from her mom. And you can't change, you know, what you inherit from your family. That is what it is. You can't change whether or not you were born by C-section. Clearly, being born by C-section does have an impact on your microbiome later in life. You can't change what your genetics are. Your genetics do have a say in terms of what your microbiome ends up looking like. Your human genetics do have a say. But... Most of what regulates, all those things that I just mentioned are actually quite small relative to the choices that you make with your lifestyle. It's your lifestyle that ultimately will determine. And when I say that, I'm talking about how you sleep, how many hours you sleep, what time you go to sleep, what time you wake up. I'm talking about exercise and how active you are how much time you spend in nature, how much time you spend in sun, how much time you spend with other human beings. Um, this is interesting. We each have like a microbial cloud, all right? It's like an aura. Um, and I, I can't say that there's a study to prove this yet, okay? But there is a study to show us that we have a microbial cloud that surrounds us. And when I read this, the first thing that came to mind for me is does that explain why dogs like certain people and don't like others? Um, I wonder about that. Does that explain why children like certain people but not others? Uh, it's entirely possible. You know, they've discovered that the smell that you have that you don't realize, but your pheromones, which attract, you know, uh, a mate, your pheromones are determined by your microbiome. So like they're your little matchmakers. They're giving you the hookup. Um, so the people that you live with, cohabitation actually, believe it or not, has an impact on your microbiome. Whether or not you have pets has an impact on your microbiome. But probably the two main things that I haven't mentioned yet, oh, I should mention real quick, alcohol and tobacco, of course, also have an impact on your microbiome. The two main things that you have complete control over are medications and your diet those by far are the biggest things and it's really at the end of the day your diet that is the driving powerful influence and we have a series of studies to support this idea that you can change your microbiome by changing your diet well well something you've you've said is as as you know there's 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 so much to digest but 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 i think one thing which which I can't seem to get out my mind is is when you said about the C-section. Uh, are you saying that the the birth of a child, the the way that the child is born, has has anything to do with the microbiome? A hundred percent. Proof. This is. I'm. I'm going to give you guys two pieces of proof that we evolved with the intention of having a powerful relationship with our gut microbiome. I'm going to give you proof that nature is showing us how important this relationship is to us, to human health, okay? So, first of all, 
take uh, a pregnant mom and she's in her third trimester and she's coming towards the end of the pregnancy getting ready to bear her child okay getting ready to i'm sorry to deliver her child weeks 35 to 36 of pregnancy typically it's about 40 weeks mom's vagina believe it or not the it has a microbiome of its own mom's vagina has a microbiome of its own and weeks 35 to 36 it starts to change and that change is to start to resemble more closely what her gut microbiome actually looks like all right her vaginal microbiome starts to mimic or resemble her gut microbiome why would that possibly be the reason why is because when a child is born the child is essentially sterile not necessarily completely but really really darn close to sterile and passes through the birth canal and in passing through the birth canal the first exposure for that child to the outside world is mom's vagina and so this is the first inoculation of a newborn child with a supercharged mother mother nature provided probiotic essentially to start the process of colonizing this child who is born almost sterile with the right microbes to support human health so mom's vagina actually changes during pregnancy to make that possible make that feasible and a child is born and from the time that they're born where they're almost completely sterile until the point that they're between two to three years of age like my son I have a son who's two and a half right now and so he's right in this spot right now from the time that they're born until that age of two to three they are in the process of developing their microbiome by the time they're two to three they have a fully formed adult size gut microbiome and so they might be a little guy like you know my little guy it's fun i get to he can i can still pick him up i know like someday he's going to be six foot nine but right now i can still pick him up and um so he's a little guy but he's got as big of a microbiome as i do he's got 39 trillion that he's rocking so that window that period of time from birth to three years of age is completely critical because it will have ramifications all the way into adulthood and if you do things that you disturb that natural process then you can have downstream consequences and so um let me give you a few examples birth by c-section which is basically bypassing delivery through the vagina is associated with a number of different conditions increased risk of obesity increased risk of asthma increased risk of even celiac disease increased risk of eczema all right so just by having c-section child you have an increased risk of those things happening um, by the way, for people who are at home listening right now and they're freaking out because they had someone by C-section, had a child by C-section, it's okay. They're going to be fine. Um, my Both of my children actually were born by C-section. There's not much that we were able to do about it. We didn't want it to be that way, but it's the way it turned out. So, so be it. Um, your children will be fine too, so don't freak out too much. But that's one example that can have an impact another example would be antibiotics again associated with increased risk of obesity increased risk of asthma increased risk of these allergic type conditions and then the third thing is breastfeeding 
we evolved to have a relationship through breast milk. And um, unfortunately, many people are not doing this. And now let me first say, like, I, I recognize that this is not necessarily easy. Like, you know, my wife and I, we had to kind of dig deep and, and especially my wife to like get things working the way that they were supposed to with, with our children. But um, that's something that we can control to some degree and we should maximize because what's interesting, I promised you two examples of mother nature proving that we evolved to have a relationship with our microbes. The first is that mom's vagina changes to resemble her gut flora. And here's the second one. Mom's breast milk contains something called human milk oligosaccharides, HMOs. HMOs have literally zero nutritional value to the child, literally zero. Um, But what they are is prebiotics. Human milk oligosaccharides, which mom has over 200 varieties, are prebiotics designed specifically to feed and nourish the new bacteria that are taking up residence within the within the gut of the newborn child. So basically, mom has breast milk designed to feed the gut microbes. So um, you take all of this, and what you end up finding is crazy studies. Let me give you just one example, where they looked at literally diaper specimens they looked they took diaper specimens from six month olds and they analyzed them and they were able to show by analyzing the microbiome at six months of age they were able to show who would develop asthma later in life and they asked the question well is it just a coincidence like how can we prove that this is really the case that the this microbiome is really actually causing the asthma so here's what they did. They took the these dirty diapers from the children who they determined were likely to develop asthma, and they did a crazy thing where they transplanted that bacteria into a germ-free mouse. So essentially it's a mouse in a laboratory that has no gut bacteria. And they gave that germ-free mouse the gut bacteria of this child, a human child. And what they found is that the mouse developed asthma. So you have these kinds of studies that prove that the mechanism involves the gut microbes. It's not just an association, it's causation. <clears throat> well, I'm sure, I mean, those examples you've given, they are undeniable. Um, and I, it's obvious how important that early stage is in terms of developing a good microbiome. And what I'm wondering is for for the people who have given themselves um sort of negative connotations and damages early on in that in that stage is that any of that reversible can you make up for any of that bad stuff or or is that something where it's just damage limitation there on out no i mean you can definitely you can definitely make up for it and and you know what it is is it 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 requires a an awareness or a consciousness of what are the things that promote a healthy gut because there's not some magic cut off at three years of age where the things that promote a healthy gut in an adult are different than the things that promote a healthy gut in a child. They're the same. It's biology. This is the way that it works. And so when you figure out what promotes a healthy gut in an adult, then you can take that information and you can, you can apply that to 
the way that you choose to raise your children. And so um, what they found, there's this um, study that's going on right now called the American Gut Project. And it's run by this guy, his name is Rob Knight, uh, Professor Rob Knight at the University of California, San Diego. And there's another uh, guy, by the way, who I believe is British. His name is Dr. Uh, Professor Jack Gilbert. And so these two guys started the American Gut Project. And basically what they've done is they've collected over 15,000 stool specimens from people from around the world. And they can correlate that to surveys. People basically fill out survey questions and so they can use the surveys to basically make inferences about what's going on in terms of the microbiome. So um, two years ago in 2017, at the biggest GI meeting of the year, I was sitting in the front row when Professor Rob Knight came up to the microphone to announce the results of the American Gut Project. And it was a packed house, standing room only. And so here's what he found. The number one predictor of a healthy gut is the diversity of the plants in your diet. The number one predictor of a healthy gut is the diversity of plants in your diet. So it's not necessarily that you're vegan. You can be a junk food vegan and have a horrible diet, like literally a horrible diet by being a junk food vegan. What it is, is it's about getting back to eating real whole foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds and nuts, um, eating them in abundance and making it a point to think about diversity. You go into the supermarket, you think about this, diversity of plants, you're in the produce section, diversity of plants, you reach out and you grab some random plants that you don't even know what it is and you take it home and you figure out what it is and you get a recipe and you just do it and you just try it. Why not? Um, it's about when you are making dietary choices, you're at the salad bar and you have the choice. You could grab just one type of beans or you could grab five types of beans. Well, I'd rather get five small scoops of five types of beans rather than one big scoop of one type of beans. You're better off with diversity of plants and you're at dinner and you have a choice of what you're eating for dinner and you opt to go for diversity of plants with your plate. So it's really... It's not about a fad diet or anything like that. It's just about a mindset and a lifestyle that can help to promote a healthy gut. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Something which I've been, you know, pondering is is since we're we're coming on this topic and you're just completely blowing our minds with this information. Is I wonder, do you think that that the 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 microbiome will become linked to say how people you know, lose or gain weight or, um, you know, or may, or I wonder if it has any impact on that in terms of, say, the ecto-meso-endomorph type. Do you think that the, that the, the microbiome is linked to how w- people gain weight at all? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think that it is. Um, let me give you an example personally, okay? This is literally me. Um, I, when I was younger... I was the king of fast food. I loved it. Um, I would come home from school when I was in high school and throw hot dogs on the, on the grill. And we would play basketball. I had two brothers. So my brothers and I would play basketball and we would eat hot dogs. That was the normal thing before dinner, just for a snack. And um, loved Philly cheesesteaks. I don't know if, if, if y'all are familiar with those. 
Um, but basically, it's like sliced up, you know, steak with cheese and onions and mushrooms, um, very greasy. Um, and was like literally known among my friends as having the worst diet. And I was always thin. That's the way I grew up. Um, kind of runs in the family. We're tall and thin. And I'm about two meters tall. And um, and then I hit 30. And I started gaining weight. And I was single. And I, you know, I knew. So I could hide the weight pretty well with my clothing because I'm tall. But I knew it wasn't good. I could, you know, I could, I could see it. I could see it in the mirror. And my weight, which was 190 pounds, um, back in, back in high school, back in college, it ballooned up to 230, 235 pounds. So hold on, let me do this math real quick. 190 divided by 2.2. So I was 86 kilograms when I was in high school and then doing the math real quick I got up to 107 kilograms so I went from I basically had a 20 over 20 kilogram jump um, in my weight between high school and um, and when I turned 30 and I was I was like working out I mean I'm not exaggerating five times a week sometimes six 30 to 45 minutes a day, heavy weights. And then I would jump on the treadmill and I would run for, you know, either I would do a 5k or a 10k or I would jump in the pool and I would swim a hundred laps in the pool. I'm not exaggerating. And I would do that almost every day. And I could not lose the weight. I like, I could not lose the weight, but my diet did not change. I was still eating a lot of fast food, a lot of burgers and so fast forward, you know, I start to see some of these studies coming out talking about the microbiome and the profound impact that fiber and plant food has on the health of our microbiome. And so I started to make dietary changes myself personally. Um, and it was never like a, you know, hey, one day, boom, I'm making the change. This was like a gradual thing. You know, I just started off with simple stuff like a smoothie here and there instead of having fast food. And but the weight was just melting off. And I, I was at a point in my life where now I'm married, I have a child, I'm working really hard, I don't have time for exercise, but yet the weight was just melting off of me and um, dropped down significantly, lost clearly more than 10 kilograms. And, um, and so, and then when I reintroduced the exercise and made some other fine tweaks getting rid of, I mean, I'll just tell you that I, I ended up, I was so close. I was basically a pescatarian. I would have fish and dairy and eggs. And I said, you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go for it. And so I got rid of those two and I lost another seven kilograms and I got back to my weight from college. I was all the way back. And, um, so it's kind of crazy, you know, sort of the way that this dietary change was so powerful in my life, but I couldn't do it with exercise alone. And if you go and you look at the studies, the studies support that the microbiome has a profound influence on our weight. Let me give you an example. There's a study, I believe it was actually the Twins UK Registry, um, where they took identical twins, okay, so they are genetically identical 
from a human perspective, genetically identical. But twins, identical twins, have a different microbiome. They're not necessarily the same. They're not going to be the same, ever. Every single one of us is unique in our microbiome. So they took these identical twins, and what they found is, a, is they found twins that basically one would be thin and one would be overweight. And they said, gosh, that's interesting. What's the deal there? And when they studied this, they found that there were differences in the microbiome between the two of them. They were genetically identical, but there were differences in the microbiome. And so then here's what they did. They took the microbiome from these humans, and they, again, transferred it into these germ-free mice. You can tell that they've done this a number of times in some really powerful studies to demonstrate the way that this works. And they took the microbiome from an obese human and they put it into a germ-free mouse and they did not change anything in the diet of the germ-free mouse. They gave it the same food, same calories, same amount, and the germ-free mouse became obese. And the opposite is true too. If you give, if you give the thin microbiome to an overweight mouse, if you change their microbiome to the thin microbiome, the, thin, the overweight mouse will become thin. So there's this... Um, powerful example that our microbiome can ultimately determine the way that we interact with our food and it helps us to understand those people who I have great respect for because they're motivated like I have such respect for the person who's overweight and they're motivated to lose the weight and they're trying and they're doing their best and they're exercising and maybe they're changing their diet but they're not getting the results and that's where this is this is how we get those results. We have to change your microbiome if we want this to work. I mean, these are some astonishing examples. And, and I just wanted to ask, going back to you talked about plants and different types being a good indicator. I just wanted to ask, does eating plants have a different impact on the gut's bacteria versus, say, eating a different type of food like processed food meat example it, it it does have a it does have a different impact and so every food that you you eat every single food will have its own unique impact on your gut microbiome there are communities of microorganisms living inside of you that are literally rising and falling with every single meal what i mean is you eat a certain meal, you eat a salad, you're going to empower the microbes. You're going to grow the microbes that do well when you eat a salad. If you eat a steak, you're going to grow the microbes that do well when you eat a steak. And so there's constantly rising and falling of different communities based upon the food that you eat at each individual meal. And there was a powerful study that was done um, in 2014 and published in literally the top journal in the entire world, which is Nature. Um, if you were to discover the cure for cancer, that's where you would publish it. This is the top journal on the entire planet. And so this study that was published in 2014 by doctors uh, Lawrence David and David Turnbaugh, they did a fascinating thing where they took humans and they basically subjected them to five days straight of two very different diets. So they would do five days straight on a completely plant-based diet, meaning that there were absolutely no animal products. It was a vegan diet, but it was a plant-based vegan diet, like there was no junk food. And then they flipped and they did the 
opposite. They did the polar opposite. They did five days without any plants at all. It was meat, cheese, and eggs. And they looked at what happened with the microbiome, and the results were shocking. In less than 24 hours, there were already dramatic changes in the microbiome when they made the dietary change. In less than 24 hours, your microbiome was dramatically different as a result of the dietary choices that you made. And they found very different results. When you consume a plant-centered diet, you, you um, help to grow the bacteria that produce you know, um, health-promoting benefits throughout the body through things called short-chain fatty acids. You see, fiber is not in the mouth and out the out the bottom. Fiber is actually consumed by these microbes. That's their energy source. When we talk about a prebiotic, like I was talking about the HMOs in breast milk, HMOs are prebiotic because they feed and nourish the bacteria in your gut. Well, fiber, fiber is prebiotic because it feeds and nourishes the bacteria in your gut. And they produce short-chain fatty acids that have these health benefits throughout the entire body. Um, so... When you eat the plant-centered diet, that's what you get. You get those types of bacteria that are anti-inflammatory and that process the fiber, and they produce short-chain fatty acids that basically work throughout the body. They correct leaky gut. Um, they heal up the intestines. They prevent ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease. They optimize the immune system, which is important for people that have autoimmune disease or allergic conditions. They prevent colon cancer directly right there in the colon. They prevent other types of cancer throughout the body. They lower cholesterol. Um, there was a recent study that just came out published in Science where they demonstrated very clear cut that the short-chain fatty acids are what protect us from developing type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. And they have effects all the way up to the brain. So this has effects throughout the entire body, and that's what you get when you eat those kinds of foods. Sticking to food groups, obviously, I think everyone's going to be having a, a mixed, varied salad tonight after after listening to this podcast. Um, but another question I wanted to ask, sticking to food groups and, and the diet in, um, I don't know if you've done any research into it, but is there any research into it and what has been found on the correlations between keto diets, ketosis, and gut health? Yeah, this is a good, this is a good question, and it's... Uh... You know, I, I mean, I, I, I would suppose it would be appropriate to call it controversial, although I don't really personally view it as that controversial. I actually think that the people who really understand what happens when you eat this way, um, the ketogenic diet, and what we're referring to here is a very, very high-fat, low-carb diet. So the, the diet is intended to be that you get about 70% of your calories from fat, that you get about 5% of your calories at the most 10, but usually about five from carbohydrates, and that you get about 25% of your calories from animal protein. Um, so that's sort of the breakdown. And of course, to accomplish that, such a high fat, low carb diet requires you to severely restrict the consumption of plant foods. Um, because carbohydrates that's where they come from carbohydrates are found in plants um, and I think that the this conversation about the ketogenic diet you know let me start with this do people who do the ketogenic diet lose weight yeah they do and I'm sad to say that this is the first example or one of the first examples of people who are losing weight 
and they're actually making themselves less healthy in the process. And so I want to walk you guys through some of the some of the reason behind that. And the other thing that I want to say is to just be completely transparent. People that have type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, are reporting that when they do a ketogenic diet, that they see dramatic improvement in their type 2 diabetes. But they're actually misinterpreting what's happening with their body. They are not improving their type 2 diabetes because the root of type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance. They're not improving insulin resistance. Instead, what they're doing is they're starving their body of carbohydrates. And if you don't eat carbs, you can't spike your blood sugar. So I understand that they feel like they're getting better because their blood sugar is not as high. Their blood sugar is not as high because they're not consuming any carbohydrates. But that does not mean that they have fixed the problem, which is the insulin resistance. They actually are, believe it or not, making it worse. They're making the insulin resistance worse. And that's what I expect us to see bore out in the studies of this particular diet. But here's the deal. Um, Let me walk you through the concerns that I have. And we can start, first of all, with the study that we were just talking about, which is this nature study from 2014, which was the animal-based diet for five days versus the plant-based diet for five days. And what's interesting is the ketogenic diet was not a popular diet in 2014. No one was talking about it. But if you look at the breakdown, if you if you dig into the study and look at the breakdown of what these people were eating, the diet, the animal-based diet was that was a ketogenic diet. That was that was 70% fat, it was low carb, um, and it was driven by meat, cheese, and eggs. All right, so that was a ketogenic diet. So what do we see when people did this? And again, this is five days, five days. This is not five years. In five days, they started to see a loss of diversity in their gut. There was a, there was a growth of uh, pathogenic inflammatory bacteria within the gut. So the opposite of what you get with the plant-based diet, you know, with the plant-based diet, you get the anti-inflammatory bacteria that promote short-chain fatty acid. Um, production with the animal-based diet, there was a flip to where they were getting inflammatory bacteria. An example of which is one called Bilophila, Bilophila wadsworthia, and this particular bacteria has been clearly associated with increased risk of a developing inflammatory bowel disease. So in less than five days, it's not that they developed inflammatory bowel disease, but in less than five days, they showed that they are basically building the foundation on which inflammatory bowel disease develops. All right, so that change occurred almost immediately. Um, They showed increased resistance to antibiotics within just five days. They showed increase in the bacteria that are known to produce secondary bile salts. Bile produced by the liver goes through the intestines and it's processed and when it's processed by gut bacteria to these secondary bile salts you're increasing your risk of developing cancer so basically in these five days what they saw are the microbes being laid down increased in number that promote the growth of cancer and if you look at the cancer studies what do you see you see a very very strong association with red meat and processed meat 
So in five days, I mean, it's basically confirmation of what we're seeing in these other studies is that in five days, we're already seeing the changes in the microbiome that promote that type of, of adaptation. But, you know, if we take a step away from that study, to me, what I worry about the most um, with the consumption of a ketogenic diet, which is a very high fat, low carb diet um, dominated by, by animal foods, what I worry about the most is TMAO. Um, I don't know, have you guys talked about this at all on your podcast? T- what's it called? TM. TMAO. TMAO. No, I don't. Well, I don't, I don't right. believe so. No. So this this is a big deal in the scientific world, and this is an example. Uh, I'm just I'm just telling you the truth here that this is an example of something where if you have an agenda. And you see this coming down the pipe because it doesn't jive with what you're trying to promote. You are going to do everything within your power to try to discredit this. But I'm going to tell you right now that the best, the best scientists, the best doctors in the world understand that what I'm about to tell you is completely legit and it's disturbing. And so, you know, think about this diet that's an animal based diet, meat, cheese and eggs. Well, Five years ago, a group of researchers at the Cleveland Clinic, which is the number one heart program in the United States, they discovered that their patients that were developing heart disease, having heart attacks, um, again, the number one killer in the United States, and I'm guessing it's the number one killer with you guys too, they discovered that these people had an increased risk of something in their blood called TMAO. So they said, okay, well, what's the deal? What is TMAO? Where does it come from? And they sort of worked backwards from that point to try to understand better what the deal was. Why would people have increased risk of TMAO? And um, essentially what they found is that there are things in our diet that if you, prov- if you provide the right stuff in your diet, for example, if you eat fiber, you will create bacteria that process fiber. And those bacteria will produce short-chain fatty acids, which are good. Well, this is the opposite of that. Okay, this is the opposite of that. This is an example where your gut microbiome can really hurt you. And so if you eat foods, if you provide the right substrates in your diet, which we're going to talk about what those are, then you are going to create bacteria that are capable of taking your diet and producing something called TMA. TMA is a chemical that smells literally like rotten fish. Why? Because if you actually smell rotten fish, which we all have a very sensitive ability to smell this, it's part of being a human. Um, if you smell rotten fish, that's because you're literally smelling TMA. That's, that's what you're smelling. It's caused by the breakdown of that fish by these bacteria that are living on the fish. So in our gut, when you eat certain foods, your gut bacteria can produce TMA. TMA will go to the liver and be transformed into TMAO, which is what we're talking about. TMAO is associated with increased risk of coronary artery disease, stroke, Alzheimer's disease, type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease. All right, right there, I just listed for you five of the top 10 causes of death in the United States of America. Coronary artery disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease, five of the top 10 causes of death. It's also associated with congestive heart failure, 
atrial fibrillation, and peripheral arterial disease. It's tearing up your blood vessels. Vascular disease driven by TMAO. It's tearing up your blood vessels, which has effects throughout the entire body. So, so this is dangerous stuff. So what is it in your diet that's doing this? Two things. The first is choline. All right. So choline in your diet, um, which you will find predominantly in red meat, egg yolk, and high fat dairy. Choline in your diet. And then the second thing is carnitine. Carnitine is found in red meat. It's also found in energy drinks. So if you take those things and you have the right microbiome, then you will produce TMAO, which is putting you at serious risk. The person who is eating egg yolks, high-fat dairy, and red meat all day, every day, is basically driving that engine as hard as they possibly can towards maximizing TMAO. You are trying to maximize what I would consider to be the most dangerous thing going in science right now. So that, to me, is what disturbs me the most about the ketogenic diet. And so here's what's interesting. Choline, many people, this is where they'll try to argue against this whole thing because they'll say, well, choline is essential. You need choline. And the truth is you do need choline uh, in your diet, but your microbiome has the ability to protect you. So they did an interesting study, the same group out of the Cleveland Clinic who's breaking this down for us. They took an omnivore, someone who eats meat regularly, and they gave them a steak. And what they saw is that person, their TMAO, which started out reasonably high, it went up sixfold. All right, it went up dramatically after they eat that steak within 24 hours. And then, in the name of science, they took a person who was completely vegan. And they convinced this person, in the name of science, to eat a steak. And so they did. And this person, their TMAO, when it started, was zero. And when it finished, after 24 hours, it was still zero. Because they don't have a microbiome that's capable of taking that steak and turning it into TMAO. They don't have those bacteria. Now, if you took that same person, that vegan, and you gave them a ketogenic diet, within guaranteed, within one month, they would be dramatically producing TMAO on the same par as the omnivore. So your gut adapts to what you're eating. Whatever choice you make, it will change, it will adapt. What we want is we want the good adaptations that are good for our health. We want to optimize our health, and we want to stay away from the things that are going to crush it. And, you know, I guess one thing that I would say, like, for the people who are listening to this, um, I just want y'all to understand the way that this works. This is biology. This is this is This is the way that it works, and the food choices that you make make a huge difference. And I'm not sitting here and telling you that you need to be vegan. Um, Because to be totally honest with you, again, if you're vegan and you're eating junk food, that's a horrible diet. But what I am telling you is we need to look to optimize plant-based diversity in our diet. Um, We need to look for opportunities to get more of that. And in countries where we are eating more meat than any other country in the world, like in the United States, we're eating 100 kilos per person per year. 
more than any other country in the world, but I know that you guys in Britain and Australia are right there with us. We need to be thoughtful about that. It's way too much. It's time to start cutting it back. Um, if you enjoyed the taste of that, that's okay. You're not a terrible person. I don't have a problem with that. Just understand that when you pound your body with meat on that proportion, you are putting yourself at risk for these particular diseases. And that's the reason why they're five of the top 10 causes of disease or of death in the United States. So, Man, you've just, you've just, you know, completely blown up. You know, you just, the, the studies, the case studies, everything is just, it's just, it's just remarkable, really, and there's just so much food for thought here. I, 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 I want to know, um, just sort of following on from this, is is how big of an impact do you think that the correlation between the microbiome and, say, mental health... I mean, you talked about serotonin earlier. What, where do you think that the correlation between those two will end up? It's, uh, I think it's actually incredibly powerful. Um, I, so I'll give you a few examples. You, you, you can actually treat depression with probiotics. You can actually give someone a, a probiotic capsule, which has live bacteria and they swallow it and it goes to their gut. And just by doing that, you can actually treat depression, believe it or not. And there are a number of different, um, psychiatric, uh, illnesses that have been associated back to changes in the gut microbiome and they span a broad, you know, it's really quite diverse, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, autism, all of these things have been associated with changes in the gut microbiome. Now, I'm not pretending that this is a silver bullet um, in the sense that, oh, you can go and like eat a salad and you're going to fix all your problems in two days. That's not the way that this works. But I will tell you that I, I completely agree with you that from a mental health perspective, you need to take care of your gut. And if you suffer from these things, anxiety, depression, like even if you don't have digestive issues, even if you don't have any sort of digestive problem, if you suffer from these um, sort of uh, mood disorders, it's, it's absolutely imperative that you're taking care of your gut because that's part of where this problem comes from. Now, as as we start to start to wrap up, and I think everyone is, you know, is everyone has no doubt. Every, everyone is sold on the on the importance of gut health, and I think what everyone is going to want to know, um, as everyone does in in this age of uh, immediacy, are there any practical tips that people can start on, you know, right now today in terms of diet, lifestyle factors. In producing a in producing a healthy gut, things they can get to work on tonight. Now that uh, their interest is peaked in this subject, yeah, for sure. Let's start. Let's start with tonight. Um, so, you let's talk about lifestyle because we've talked about diet. So you know where I stand on diet. You know, you guys know where I stand on diet. Maximum plants, maximum plant-based diversity. Um, start to taper down on animal products, improve the quality of those animal products if you do consume them. Like, you know, I, opting for more salmon as opposed to red meat or particularly processed meat, trying to get rid of the processed foods as much as possible, really get rid of them. But let's start with tonight and some simple things. Um, you know, the world is set to a natural rhythm. It exists in nature 
It exists in you too, and the way that you interact with your microbiome. If you fly from your country to the United States and you get jet lag, that's because you've thrown your natural rhythm off within your microbiome. It wants to work one way, but you're asking it to work a different way, and it needs to reset its natural rhythm, and that's why you feel like crap for a few days. So the sun comes up in the morning, and it sets in the evening, and we should be tying our natural rhythms to the same rhythm that exists on our planet when the sun comes up and the sun goes down. When the sun goes down in the evening, it's time for us to start winding down. television in bed try to minimize your exposure to bright screens try not to do too much on the computer or on a tablet um you know really start to sort of uh, cool off a little bit maybe read a book things of that variety and get to bed get to bed get a good night's rest um so sleep is actually critically important you know some people are under the impression that when you're an adult you don't need as much sleep that's not true you need just as much as your kids do and you know to me it's a minimum of eight hours it's a minimum of eight hours. Now, look, am I, am I perfect? Hell no. Um, you know, I, I'm very busy, and there's a lot of times where I don't get that. But the point from my perspective is take advantage of what you can. So these little things, these little things can all add up to big results. Wind down in the evening. Try not to watch too television in bed. Don't have bright exposure to screens. Get to bed nice and early. Get a good night's rest. All right. Another thing talking about in the evening that we can do that's incredibly simple is follow the simple rule. Early dinner as much as possible. Have an early dinner, and then after dinner, if you want to have dessert, that's fine. You want to have a little beverage with dinner, that's fine. After dinner, nothing. That's it. No more food, no more beverage, with the exception of water. That's it. So you have an early dinner, and then there's a few hours before you go to bed, and then you wake up in the morning, and it's been more than 12 hours since the last time you ate, and you're giving your gut a rest. Think about your gut being similar to a muscle. It needs rest. If you exercise, if you go for a hard run, you need to give it some rest before you go for another hard run. If you work out in the gym, same is true. You need that rest in order to get your strength. So give your gut a rest. Let it, let it rest for 12 hours. We call that time-restricted eating. Some people refer to that as intermittent fasting. I, I technically think intermittent fasting is a little bit different, but the concept what we're talking about is the same, which is a lifestyle where you have a period of time during your day where you are not taxing your gut with food. And I, so I think that's a simple thing that can be done. And then here's one, one more simple thing. Water. Drink lots of water. Wake up in the morning, two big glasses of water right from the get-go when you wake up in the morning. Um, make sure if you drink coffee that you're drinking just as much water as you do coffee in the morning. And with each meal, have two large glasses of water instead of something else. And you'll be amazed at what a difference this can make in terms of your health. Amazing. So take all of that and then just add some exercise in there, add in some plants, and you'll be good. Amazing, amazing. And uh, about the sleep, you know, for for all of our Freedom Pack listeners, we've got two very, you know, two world-leading renowned sleep experts coming on within the next month. So, following on from what Will says, stay tuned for those episodes. One of one of the last questions I wonder, and the microbiome is such a hot topic, I wonder where you think that the research into the microbiome is going to lead. Oh, gosh, that's such a great question. Um, I think the future, and we are not there right now, 
the future is personalized medicine. And it's the microbiome that's going to allow us to do that. I really think that probably in the next 15 years, might take a little, it's hard for me to say completely. I'm going to guess 15 years. We are going to figure out a way to look at, to analyze someone's microbiome and tell them specifically, okay, here are the foods that do the best for you. Um, here is a probiotic designed specifically to address the weaknesses in your microbiome. And so giving that sort of personalized feedback is what I think the future is. But, you know, even if that were the case, even if that were the case, I still believe that diversity of plants will still be the rule. It'll still be the rule. And, you know, when when we say this, diversity of plants, um, we're not talking about um, the same diet for all people. What we're saying is that you're going to have your own way of doing this. You know, you might not be able to eat as much beans as I could eat. That's okay. But the point is, don't deprive yourself of the beans entirely and cut them out completely. Keep them in your diet. It's just that you may want to moderate your portion size based upon what you feel works best with your body. For sure. And and something which um, which our audience is renowned with is that everyone here at the freedom pack they they are huge readers and i'm sure there are people that are listening to, uh that would love to, for some book recommendations from you into the gut do you have any uh, books that you could recommend i'm a big i like uh i'll give you a couple authors that i like um if we're talking about the gut microbiome so i i like um Robin Chutkin, C-H-U-T-K-A-N, uh, I believe is her is the spelling, and so she wrote the Microbiome Solution. Now I will I will tell you that the Microbiome Solution I think is like four or five years old, and believe it or not, in microbiome years, that's a lot has changed. But I think the ideas that she presented were very sound, and she's a she's a fantastic physician and knows what she's talking about. So she's one person, and then another one is uh, Justin Sonnenberg, S-O-N-N-E-N-B-U-R-G. Um, I forget the name of his book. I think it might be The Good Gut. The Good Gut, yeah, that's it. Yep, and so, and that's that's a great book, and he is a, he is a very highly accomplished researcher. We didn't touch on any of his studies specifically during this podcast here today, but I will tell you that in my book, there are a number of times that I refer to studies that, that Dr. Sonnenberg has done. He's at Stanford. Well, another question that we we tend to ask all our guests, and uh, we like to finish on is, and obviously this this would be a tough question for you, um, given you know the ex- your extensive knowledge. But if you could, you know, sort of some not summarize, but distill your message down in, into into a short message that if you had the opportunity that you could share with every person on the planet in a short, impactful way, what would that message be? to have complete control over health within your body and that the way that you will control that is with your choices, uh, meaning your lifestyle. And so the food choices that you make on a day-to-day basis are ultimately what are going to determine the manifestation of health and disease during your lifetime. And that I want to empower you with the knowledge that by focusing on plant-based diversity, 
making that sort of your credo for the way that you eat, that you have the ability to optimize gut health and in the process enjoy the downstream benefits that come with that. Well, that's an absolutely fantastic message and it's been telling of the entire episode. I mean, the in-depth knowledge you have in the case studies, it's, it's all been absolutely fantastic and we know our listeners are really going to appreciate it and we're so excited to release this episode. Uh, we can't thank you enough for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure and one of my favourite conversations we've had on the podcast so far. That's great. I'm so It's such an honour to be on with you guys. I love what you guys are doing and um, I would. Uh, I always enjoy interacting with uh, the people who listen to my podcasts and you know, I would encourage them to come follow me on Instagram at the Gut Health MD. Um, and what, one of the things that I love, honestly, is if you enjoyed this podcast, share it on social media. Let people know. Let people know, and let's let's try to spread this message together. You know, and that way we can get the word out so that other people can benefit from this knowledge and information as well. Amazing, and we will link to all of Will's stuff in the in the. Uh, link below we will have um, we'll be keeping a very close eye <clears throat> we'll be keeping a very close eye on on will's upcoming book i mean and i know for sure that i'll personally be telling my girlfriend to to stay very healthy and to try to keep her microbiome as possible just in case a c-section does have to happen so will it's been an absolute amazing episode we can't thank you enough don't tell her I do colonoscopies, though. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep it between Thanks, us. Guys. Thanks, Will, so much. Thanks, man.